This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. We are recording this on Monday morning. Uh, It's still fantastically sunny and hot in San Marino, and we're here at the test. So there are motorcycles going around. There might even be one or two starting up and warming up underneath us. So if there is a bit of a din in the background, we apologize. But it's great to talk to you again and try to sum up some of the big topics uh, from the Grand Prix this week. Dave, how are you? I am uh, pretty good, thank you very much. I mean, I could have done with a bit more sleep, but uh, yes, apart from that, pretty good. Can you please explain to all of our listeners the momentous occasion that took place on Sunday evening down in Riccioni <laughs> in a restaurant? You know, this is kind of groundbreaking, really. Uh, yes, you ordered a tiramisu and I ate some of it. However, I must immediately point out that, and it was delicious. And the reason it was delicious is because there was no coffee made used in the oh, making of it. Dave, so, shattered the illusion. Yeah, no. So it was, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was absolutely great. Like literally the only thing that ruins tiramisu is, is the um, horrific uh, habit of putting coffee in it. Neil, he cheated. He did. Yeah, and I'm just gutted I missed out on it. I had a, a deadline last night, so I was unable to, to be there to witness the historic moment. Um, and I guess it's pretty obvious now what all of our moments of the weekend was. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's been a curious latest episode of MotoGP. So, I mean, you teed it up perfectly, Neil. Let's go straight into our moments. So, uh, Dave, what kind of stood out for you from the weekend or from like the three days of this event? I uh, uh, sort of struggled uh, a little bit weird to find a moment because the racing was not fantastic uh i mean if i had to give it a rating the rating would probably be we're not onto ratings yet. we're talking moments yeah yeah well i well, mean the ra- give us your rating and then well, go my, to a moment my yeah. rating is i would give it about a four out of ten because of, yes because it wasn't it wasn't terrific um but the moment i mean the, the moment for me was um mark, mark is using danny pedrosa as a toe to get through to q2 uh his latest victim his latest victim the fact i mean there's so much in there the fact that he used danny as a uh, as a toe the fact that he still needs a toe to get through to q2 the fact that danny pedrosa is so fast still that he's able to give someone a toe that you know he's like the best person to be following if you want to go fast um you know the fact that Danny finished up fourth, that's, that's how fast he was. And that actually launched what ended up being quite a reasonable weekend for Mark Marquez under the circumstances. I think your rating is outrageous. But um, first of all, my moment, I, I'm going for something also that was off the track. And I just really liked Jorge Martin's embrace with his dad in part Ferme. Uh, it was a sustained kind of outlet of emotion, I thought. And it was, uh, you know, Jorge Martin... It has had a not a conventional career let's say he's had a sort of hard route to the top uh, i thought his his performance over the weekend doing the triple pole position sprint and grand prix was you know arguably the the peak so far of his his career in terms of sporting achievement and it was just a really nice moment that he got to celebrate it with the guy who's always had his back um you know one of the nice if short-lived facets of the amazon prime series was you know the the jorge martin story and, and some of the adversities had in his career and i just thought it was very touching it reminded me of the um and neil will appreciate this the, the jordan henderson hug 
um, after Liverpool won the Champions League with his dad on the pitch, which was also quite um, just full of emotion. So, yeah, I, I managed to mention Liverpool at the top of the podcast. Are you, are you happy now? And Tiramisu. Yes, I know. <laughs> absolutely. Your moment, Neil? Um, well, as Dave said, the moments were few and far between, unfortunately, in the race. It wasn't one that was packed with incident. Um, but uh, I think the final lap, um, Luke Marini tried to pass Mark Marquez going down into turn four. Um, he got it all out of shape and uh, basically ran out wide and uh, Mark came through. And it didn't sound like massively significant, but speaking to Marini afterwards, he said, yeah, Mark was actually really cute in that moment. And um, he knew I was trying to get by and I was going to try and accelerate under him coming through turn three. So what he did is he basically cut the line and made sure that I had to um, go over the curbs at almost full lean angle to get past him with the throttle open. It overheated the rear tire ever so slightly, just so just enough that when he eventually peeled into turn four, the rear came round. He had a big out-of-the-seat moment, and, uh, and Mark came through to get a really, really impressive seventh. And we're obviously going to talk a bit more about Mark's weekend in the show, but um, it was just one of those little insights into the kind of intricacies of, of racecraft and defensive riding that um, maybe isn't so obvious from the television. So I thought that was... Uh, pretty impressive yeah my runner-up moment actually involved brad binder's move during the sprint i think we took two positions in one go you kind of thought okay you know the south african is really going to be a force in the grand prix race itself but it didn't turn out to be that way but uh yeah you know, i mean brad binder the brad binder's ride in the uh in the sprint race was fantastic it was really fun to watch and you know really lots of really aggressive passing um and yeah Aggressive but clean. Really enjoyed it. Franco Morbidelli told us in Catalonia that, you know, we need to be watching further down the field and the MotoGP TV production needs to be focusing more on the battles away from the podium to get some really hot stuff. And I think, you know, that was shown a little bit in the Grand Prix yesterday. You know, the likes of Mark Marquez, what was going on further down the pack. And it was, uh, there was some, some juicy moves going on there yeah i mean it was sort of last lap desperation stuff the, the, the there was a long period of time when not much happened and then sort of everyone had a bit of tire left at the end and thought well you know nothing to lo- left to lose might as well try it my rating for this grand prix is a high seven goodness me i know have you, be, you've been yeah. drinking <laughs> hear me out i think the weather the vibe the paddock was ridiculously full of people, which, you know, obviously is an inconvenience in one way, but then also very encouraging in another. The circuit was in good shape. You know, people weren't complaining. There weren't ridiculous bumps. There was grip everywhere, uh, which was also fascinating for, like, the technical problems it presented to some people. Maverick Mignales was talking quite eloquently on this and how it just affects the whole balance of the motorcycle when you have too much rear grip and, you know, the effect then on, on the front end. But I just thought, yeah, it had all the ingredients. Um, you know, even down to I'm looking behind you now, Dave, and the event poster, I think designed by Aldo Drudy's studio. I mean, just little details like that really, you know, mark this event out. I actually prefer it to Mugello now, I think. Oh, you're uh, you're in the Steve English camp now. Yeah, I think so. Yep, Steve, I'm with you. I've seen the light. <laughs> and um, I, the only thing that goes against this GP for me is that it feels a little bit like being in VR46's backyard. You know, yes. It feels like you're crashing the party. I mean, they use this place to train. They're all from around the region. Uh, you feel like you're uh, possibly outstaying your welcome if you're here too long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is. And obviously, you know, they, the VR46 people, do, uh, riders, or, or do all train here. So that's it, it does tend to sort of like color the, uh, color the event. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like in terms of, in terms of an event, 
it is. It's it, it's a very good event, and it was busy. It's still not as busy as the uh, as sort of pre-COVID full-on VR forty-six times when basically you literally couldn't move in the paddock uh, sometimes. But the paddock was very very uh, full. They actually quoted the separate number of VIP village fan uh, and paddock guests or something, uh, which is eight thousand, which is was a lot. lot really. Well, yeah. I mean, there was seventy nine thousand four hundred for the rate the figure yesterday. Yeah, which is nearly double. Uh, I think what it was last year. So you know, one hundred and forty thousand for the weekend. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but we know that that's a bit of a, a sham figure. But um, yeah, for the the Sunday, I think that's always the most uh, um, the, the the figure of the attendance that you can sort of trust the most. But um, yeah, I mean, a, a big improvement than last year when attendances in Italy were pretty worrying. What was your mark on the chalkboard now? I mean, I thought, yeah, like I thought yesterday's race was low on incident, but it was still kind of intriguing. The fact that you had Pecco and Bezecchi injured um, and Pedroza obviously in the action, that sort of made it quite interesting, I felt. Um, bit of a crap Moto2 race, good Moto3 race, two good Moto E races. Um, you know, overall, probably a 7, 7.5. Um, but yeah, if we were just marking the MotoGP race, it would obviously be a good a good bit lower than that. A quick question for you, because you mentioned it. Moto2, Pedro Acosta, I mean, that was the final stamp on his goodbye to Moto2 next year. I mean, we know he's going to MotoGP, but I mean, that again, that degree of excellence and consistency means he's out-graduating, or is the, if that's such a, a concept, Moto2 now. Do you remember a couple of years ago here with Remy Gardner and also Ralph Fernandez? Fernandez had that big, big, fast crash that seemed to be like the swing in the 2021 championship. Uh, I felt to, you know, even though Tabi, Tony Arbolino had a better weekend than he did in Catalonia, it, it felt like Pedro Acosta's really kind of sort of stretching away to get this title now. A little bit. Um, although Arbolino in the flyaways, I think he's going to come back stronger. Last year, Tony was, Tony found his sort of best form in, in the flyaways. So I think speaking to a couple of, members of his team they seem to think that as long as he's not completely out of reach going to India which he's not I think he's like 34 points back now he's still got a chance but yeah Costa was just great all weekend and you could see Celestino Vietti had had the rhythm yesterday um got pole position speaking to a few people yesterday morning they thought that Chelle could give Pedro a run and he did for half the race but then he was just overriding so much and he had like a massive front end slide at turn one he had a couple of big big slides coming out of um turn 14 Pedro's pace was too much for him, so yeah, no one could live with Pedro. Yeah, and I think the difference between uh, Pedro Acosta and the rest is that his bad days are really still pretty good, uh, because you know had a had a sort of mildly disappointing weekend in Barcelona, but still ended up fourth, I think, sixth. Yeah, see, that's a lot of points. That's uh, that that's still competitive. He's he's not ending up down tenth, twelfth, fifteenth. And he also had probably the quote of the day, which was, uh, you know, I think. um, Celestino beat me in KTM's home race, which hurt a lot, but I beat him here, so tough shit. <laughs> Although with his accent, it was hard to pick up. So I mean, he's got a quip. I don't think uh, Matt Burt you know, felt he had to apologize because it was um, you know, barely uh, kind of legible, really, on the audio. Anyway, still to come on the show, uh, we're going to talk about the Mar- Marquez saga, how it's kind of turning, and uh, Jorge Martin, you know, his championship status or potential um a little bit on mike trimby of course who's sad passing um was really the removal of one of the cornerstones of the MotoGP paddock and and how the sport has been formed over the last 
three to four decades. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about static racing. We also have a, an interview with um, Bob Moore from the Wasserman Media Group, um, one of the rider agents in the paddock. And he's going to talk about working with riders and how the silly season develops and all the drama that goes with it. But first of all, uh, don't forget to check out rental.com, as we mentioned at the top of the show. Thanks to Rental, we can do this podcast. Uh, and if you click on the special street bike section of their website, there's loads of accessories you can get to upgrade your ride, make your street bike feel better. Just go and have a look. Maybe you'll see something you fancy checking out. Dave, I'm going over to you again now. Static racing. Yes. You mentioned it. You, you know, one of the reasons that you gave this Grand Prix a four out of ten was because um, of the racing yeah I, I was i have to admit i felt a bit sleepy during one point of the 27 laps yesterday it felt like 37 but yeah um, it was close i mean we're not talking three to four second gaps between each rider but no yeah exactly i mean it was it was tense but not exciting um you felt that something might happen but nothing ever did um there's been a few of those races this year Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's a there's a, like for me, there's a number of causes. Riders said the same sort of thing. I think primarily what you have to think about is the fact that uh, what we saw was three nearly identical bikes racing for the same um, piece of tarmac sort of thing. Everyone's using the same tires. The grip was fantastic. The tires are this year's tires for Michelin. The compounds have got a bit more durability uh, uh, and a bit more performance. Um, no one ran out of tires at the end. If you look at the uh, at the pace, the pace is pretty much the same in the final lap. I think um, uh, Jorge Martin did a thirty-two zero at the end of uh, 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 on his penultimate lap. Um, and his best lap was a 31.8 or uh, uh, 31.79 or something. So just he, his, his pace was phenomenal. It was phenomenally consistent. And that was the same. You have three riders who are all capable of riding more or less the same pace. They're all on more or less the same machine. Um, and because they're on the same machine, it becomes much more difficult to actually pass because they all have the same sort of strengths and weaknesses. Even though there's a, there's a GP23 and a GP22, there's not that much difference in, in them. But to cut across you there, Dave, Jorge Martin said he was coming here expecting a difficult weekend and it turned out to be his best one. And then you could say arguably that Marco Bezzecchi with his left hand injury and Pecco Bagnaia with bumps and bruises, hematomas from that huge off in Catalonia last week also exceeded expectations. Yeah. And uh, it was Pecco actually that credited the incredible performance of the Michelins by saying this such small time difference across the course of the race just proves again how how good the tires are yeah yeah yes exactly i i mean definitely i think the race finished the way it did because of uh, peco and uh, bez's injuries but i think that the start of the race when they <laughs> when the drugs were still working uh, i think that and and the adrenaline was working i think that was where you saw like this is the way that modern motor gp is there's other factors as well very important again front tire pressures the front tire pressures are caused by all of the aerodynamics and the uh, and the ride out devices people were having problems with tires overheating tire pressures uh, coming up um people were sort of like having to drop back a little bit to cool the tire off and then try uh, try to pass again um but yeah overtaking has become extremely difficult in motor gp and especially at a tight track like this i thought luca marini's weekend was bizarre because he started with the the exuberance of having signed a new deal which he was clearly very happy with he was included in the official press conference but then neil i mean his 
his debriefs kind of took on a repetitive form of real disillusion, really, to saying, I couldn't get the start. And if you can't get the start in MoGP, you cannot pass. It was almost like a little bit whingy, a little bit, you know, he was clearly not happy. So it was. it's a strange... It kind of illustrated some of the frustration the riders have with the current state of MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, I think this track is uh, maybe something to play with it. It is a quite narrow uh, track that is quite difficult to overtake on in certain places. Um, I think it's fair to say we haven't had a load of brilliant MotoGP races here. I think 2019 in recent history is the one that sort of springs to mind as the one sort of where we had a bit of overtaking some action on the final lap last year I guess was pretty close with um, Peko and Bastianini but again that wasn't like overtaking all the time it was more a cat and mouse chase and um, I think it was Alessio Spargaro was saying he was sat behind a couple of Ducatis Zarco Marquez Alex Marquez Marini and he said Marini was so so fast and was riding so well but um, he just couldn't get past the, the two other Ducatis ahead who were clearly a lot slower than him um, just because they were breaking so deep, so late. And um, yeah, the front tire pressure was uh, was a thing. I mean, I, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, Dave, but just up front in, in, in yesterday's race, like a, I think it was 10 seconds faster than the 2022 race. Um, Pecco was six seconds faster than 2022. Um, and that was with a croc leg. Um, and last year's race, they set the fastest lap on the final lap. Um, and just for some context on how much quicker MotoGP has become over the last four years, the race time in 2019 was f- over 50 seconds slower than yesterday. 50? 50. 50. Wow. 50 zero. 51 seconds slower. So um, it gives you an idea, like the difference that the aerodynamics, the ride height devices are making on on kind of race times. I mean, that's one, one and a half seconds per lap faster. Also, the tires as well have, have improved, I think, well, the, the rear tire has improved considerably since 2019 as well. Um, but, you know, Martin was flawless. He was he perfectly executed his game plan in both the sprint and the, the main race. He got out front, and the pace that he was setting was was formidable. And I think that is that's also one of the reasons why the racing was pretty terrible. What do we think about Peko Bagnaia's claim or question that every circuit in MotoGP should have this level of grip? Uh... uh <sighs> That, I mean, yes, it, it would be nice, but then it would also be a bit boring. I think Aleish said, uh, you know, we come from a track with no grip to a track with lots of grip, and you need all of this variation. I mean, you know, we don't all go... What you could do is build exactly the same track with exactly the same layout, with uh, exactly the same tarmac in, in, I don't know, 20 different countries around the world um, and uh, hold a world championship. But it'd be extremely boring. It's much more interesting seeing the actual variety of tracks. And the changes in grip, I think, is uh, uh, is very important. There has to be a certain level of grip. There are some tracks where they do a better job of managing the surface than others i think that barcelona is due a resurfacing um uh, i think this one is going to be fine for another you know five five at least another five years maybe longer when was uh, it resurfaced here maybe the 2019 race time is something to do with it yeah i mean just to give you an indication of how much faster moto gp has got in recent years uh the race time yesterday was 51 seconds faster than 2019 but then obviously the track was resurfaced a year later and um, if we compare it to the 2021 race it was uh sorry the 2020 race it was 21 seconds faster so in what two years we've basically jumped almost a second a lap um so that kind of gives you uh an indication of how much uh difference 
these ride height devices and aerodynamics are having on uh, on the kind of race times that we we have at the moment. Are we being too harsh on MotoGP by expecting more exciting scenes? Because if you take the Grand Prix as a whole, then you have Moto3 that habitually has very close finales. I mean, look at also the Red Bull MotoGP Rookies Cup yesterday, decided by a photo finish in the second and last race of their season. Moto E was fantastic as well, right up until the checkered flag. But then you have, you know, different racing in Moto2 and then MotoGP. I mean, you cannot have four riders split by fractions of a second at the finish line every single time, can you? No, um, but I think we can be harsh on MotoGP because there's a kind of a very clear and obvious cause of uh, of this and, and the most important thing I think is the spectacle um, that's the thing that will draw the crowds in was reading quite a few comments on Twitter last night just from fans talking about the race and a lot of people were just saying how this they felt that this kind of type of racing fell into a pattern of of recent um, MotoGP history and uh, that that is slightly concerning um, I don't think we're having a terrible MotoGP season we're certainly not at 800cc level of boredom um but yeah there's probably been more boring races than than not um and you know we're coming from an era of probably the most exciting varied racing in premier class history so this does stand out particularly you know when we think back to 2017 18 19 the racing was pretty much fantastic almost everywhere we went um well 19 was the marquez year but it was still great racing every weekend I mean, the, 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 we had great racing because there were different there were different bikes racing each other, and we don't have different we don't have two different bikes with different or you know two three four different bikes with different ways of making the lap time. We're getting there with KTM, but the trouble is, you know, we we have these aerodynamics which are slowing everything down. I think to me, MotoGP is not so much boring. Uh, it's well, the racing is boring, but there is always plenty to write about for me because there's lots of sort of you know background stuff that's uh, that, that, that interesting. There are yes, subplots. exactly. There's lots of there's lots of stuff which you, which are worth exploring, but um, you know, as a forty-five minute fix of uh, visual entertainment, it's not great. You're trying to simplify this thing, it's not really going to change or get immediately better unless Honda turn up with a miraculously new motorcycle or Yamaha. And we can't wait until 2027 for a radical shift in the technical regulation. So the only other solution is a Michelin bring a magic new tyre next which, year. Which isn't going to come until 2025. They actually have the new front tyre here, but it's only the test riders uh, who are going to be using it. I think only uh, Stefan Bradl is, uh, uh, is here at the moment. So, yeah, we're not going to see any uh, anything amazing. We're not going to see... Uh, I think Michelin said that um, they are hoping that the MotoGP riders will get to try the first prototype of this 2025 um, uh, front tyre at Valencia or maybe Sepang. The problem is Michelin have these design criteria um, based on all of the data they've collected from the bikes and then they start to design and build a tyre and then by the time they've finished it, the bikes have changed radically because this tyre this tire should have been introduced in 2021 um, and if it wasn't for COVID and aerodynamics, uh, well if it wasn't for COVID it might have been 2020, uh, it might have been introduced in 2021 um, but that was exactly the moment at which this radical change in aerodynamics and ride height devices changed the way that the front is loaded um, and changed the design criteria basically for, for the front tyre. We're going to take a quick pause now for an ad break but when we come back Jorge Martin, Mark Marquez and plenty more. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. 
The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. We're back. Dave, on Saturday after the sprint, Jorge Martin said that he is not expected to win a championship. It's not his job. It's not his role. He's not a factory rider. He repeated the same thing in the official press conference after taking the victory over 27 laps yesterday. He's now closer than I think he's ever been for most of the season, at least, to Peko Bagnai at the top of the championship table. He's the clear challenger, you would say. Even Marco Bezzecchi was kind of laughing a little bit, saying that the pressure's not on me, as if to indicate that it's Martin's job. Is is he just... It's just a ploy, right? Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things at play here. Most of it is a ploy. Um, there is also the fact that uh, it's also a little bit of way of putting pressure on Ducati, uh, or to, to to put the burden of responsibility on on Ducati. So because he saw the the subtext is, you know, Ducati are not going to let me win a championship, um, but it's also especially, I think, an attempt to try to put pressure on Pekka Banyai, saying, you know, if you don't win this championship, then you've really messed up. Yeah, but isn't it, couldn't it work the other way? Couldn't you say, yes, I'm going for the title, this is my year, and then that would motivate or perhaps force Ducati to give him more support than they currently are? I mean, he has a factory bike, so what more could yeah, they exactly. no, he has, do? Yeah, exactly. He has pretty much exactly the same bike as um, uh, Pekka Banyai. The only difference that I know of, that I've been able to see, uh, is that uh, Peko has something special for the starts. Um, I'm not quite sure what, uh, but yeah, I mean Jorge Martín, you know, he's he's fast enough. Um, he has the ta- he has the uh, he has the talent. He has the tools. He has the team as well. He also like gave a shout out to Gina Borsoy who came in and uh, created some calm and some organisation in the team, which has helped um, everyone in the team make a sort of a, a step forward in terms of competitiveness. So yeah, the, there's no reason he shouldn't win one. I mean, the only way, well, there are two things that would stop him from winning a championship. The first one, obviously, being Pekka Banyaya, who might have quite a large <laughs> say in this. Uh, but the second is would be Ducati stepping in sort of thing. But I mean, we saw last year with uh, Bastianini that Ducati basically said, look, we don't care who wins the championship. What we don't want is you is, is people taking each other out. Um, if you want to fight for the championship, that's fine. It's also interesting because this year, uh, if Jorge Martin and Pekka Benyar get involved in a battle and start taking each other out, that'll be Marco Bezzecchi who's champion. Whereas last year, I think it would have been Fabio Quartararo. Yep. So they would still get to keep the championship. So, you know, maybe maybe things will change a little bit. What's your What's your opinion, Neil? Because Jorge Martin struggled with injury in the past. Uh, we, haven't, we, we know he doesn't bounce particularly well. He had problems with the GB22 engine, almost kind of similar to the problems that Bastianini's been having this year with the GB23 and the factory team, just not been able to get the right setting or feeling with a factory bike. Uh, but he seems to have risen his level a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's definitely uh, he's definitely now performing at a level um, that we probably expected from him last year. Um, he's consistent. I think the only issue really since the Saxon ring was um, his qualifying was a bit off for a couple of race weekends. Aston and Silverstone, uh, Red Bull ring, um, you know, small details had a massive impact on both of his races. You know, he had his best lap time cancelled, for example, in the Red Bull ring. 
um, in qualifying, which meant he had to start from way back on the fourth row, I think. Then, obviously, that complicated his race. I think without that, he could have maybe been up there fighting with, maybe not with Peko in the Red Bull ring, but somewhere around there. Um, and he managed to get that completely sorted out here, set a sensational um, pole position time. Um, something like six tenths under the previous lap record, just yeah. ludicrous. And, and four tenths faster than everyone else. Yeah, which was kind of Jorge Martin back in 2021, you know, when he first rose up into the MotoGP class or when he was the guy who scored, what, 20 pole positions in Moto3. We always know he had, he's had the speed, but yeah, he's just um, just looking a bit more complete, isn't he? Not making mistakes, um, leading and handling pressure now obviously I think it might have been a different story yesterday if, if Pecco wasn't injured um, I think Pecco really would have taken the fight to him at least or maybe Jorge would have had to take the fight to Pecco but um, it's bubbled up quite nicely actually you know we have had uh, one or two moments where they've faced off in races so far this year like in the Saxon ring that was a great race um, so I think it could be quite a juicy a juicy end to the year um, I'm looking forward to it yeah yeah, yeah, the one thing that, or one of the reasons why Jorge Martin is going better this year is uh, he explained that this engine that he's got is much better than the one he had last year. Uh, in 2022, the Pramac guys were left with the uh, what was supposed to be the, 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 the 2022 spec engine, and that turned out to be too aggressive. The factory guys went back to a hybrid between the 21 engine and the 2022 engine, and that had much better power delivery. The 23 engine is basically a development of that and it's you know the power delivery is much better it's much smoother and that's why like he came here expecting a really bad weekend because of what happened last year um but this engine is so much better in the sprint race he credited the, the engine with making it easier i think also um from a human side last year there was this constant speculation about whether it was going to be him or an bastianini that would get the factory bike in 2023 and Although there was a little bit of speculation that he was, and I think he was quite obviously looking beyond uh, Pramac Ducati for 2024 at the start of this year, but he quickly came around to the fact that be stupid, really stupid to leave where he is right now to go to somewhere like Yamaha. It's just like, what? It doesn't make sense at all. He's made that decision very early on to stay with Pramac next year. And I think just having that whole thing sorted and settled in his mind and it's not constantly. Last year, you felt he was quite angry at Ducati towards the, the tail end of the year because they picked Bastianini over him. Now he just seems kind of settled and content with where he is. Um, eyes on a factory bike in 2025, and I think that's also contributing to this sort of steadiness we're seeing in his results. You sort of wonder uh, how Anaya Bastianini's absolutely miserable year is also um, uh, affecting him because you sort of like sitting there feeling all smug. Oh, this is the dude you choose, boys. You know, you uh, you made your bed, you lie in it. Yeah, the, to adopt the cliche, it's like Martin lost the battle, but he could win the war because they might swap saddles, you know, potentially after after the next season. But um, yeah, Martin seemed to have more of a chip on his shoulder last year, and that doesn't really seem to be the case, not publicly at least anyway, this year. So maybe a happier rider's leading towards uh, more of an effective rider. Neil, you and I also talked about this briefly when we were driving out of the circuit yesterday, that how Ducati, when they have a winning machine and, you know, a, a huge stable of riders, then they potentially could manipulate situations where when it comes to contracts, when it comes to salaries or whatever else, they can keep people happy by giving them the provisions to succeed. It's um, it's a curious situation, really, isn't it? Because they can just really finesse their whole collection of riders just by the virtue of the fact that their bikes are so good. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can keep a guy like Marco Bezzecchi, who's had a fantastic season this year, is third in the championship, should be a factory rider next year, judging by his performance this year. But you've got a guy like that who is perfectly content to stay where he is on a year-old machine next year and kind of stall his career progression in a sense. Um, and yeah, that's what happens when you've got the best bike, the most rounded bike, um, and you've got a you know a, a stable of decent factory, sorry, satellite teams. Um yeah, and I guess you could also look at it that with this kind of situation, you're not like a Honda or a Yamaha where you're having to pay your riders crazy, crazy high salaries to kind of keep them there, you know. Um, I'm pretty sure, with the exception of Banyaya, the rest of the Ducati stable are on pretty uh, significantly lesser wage than someone like Joanne Mir or Fabio Quattararo. So, um, you know, yeah, like Ducati sort of have their whole ethos thing really kind of sorted. That's another reason why Jorge Martin might have had his eyes turned by a factory Yamaha contract because you do have that status as a you know a leader of a whole manufacturer as well as the, the financial side that comes with it. Moving on, uh, we started the Grand Prix with a little bit of uh, fuel on the fire to use his own words from Mark Marquez about what he was going to be doing next year. And um, as we're talking, he's outside on the 24 spec or some ideas at least for next year for Honda. So he's, he's basically, because I've been, I've been down to the garage and he's basically, him and Joan Mir are both on the bike, uh, the, the, the bikes which Stefan Bradl used this weekend uh, right down to the scrutineering stickers. Right, okay. Oh, Neil, we, again, we were saying walking in that, you know, Mark in the next few hours is probably going to be thinking while he's on the bike, you know, do I collect my 20 million euros again next year, fulfill the contract or do I get out of Dodge and accept far less money and try and win more MotoGP races. Yeah, but I don't think it's about the bike. I think it is much more about, um, uh, even though he was yesterday he was uh, doing his best Feyenoord uh, uh, um, uh, imitation, the Geen Warder Mardad, and we say, uh, is their slogan, which is, you know, uh, deeds and not, uh, and not words, you know, action, not Listen, words. stop, right? Just because you've eaten tiramisu, now you're bringing up <laughs> football references. <laughs> Who is this man, Neil? Yeah, exactly. abducted by aliens in the middle of the night. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the it, it's yes, he wants to see real progress with the bike, but also it is there are a lot of Japanese engineers wandering around. It's about listening. It's about um, it, he wants to see people like coming up with plans and really showing plans, not just sort of you know empty words. He wants to see a real change and a real change in attitude and approach. So far, without. Looking at the lap times, Honda seem to be doing that. Uh, yes. You would also yeah. believe that they have a green light to hire more technicians. Uh, maybe poach, maybe the wrong word, but at least try and recruit from other areas of the MotoGP paddock, not rely 100% on HRC internal staff. Uh, it might just be enough to keep Mark there because if he leaves HRC, then they are really in it. Yeah, I mean... Um it does require, as Dave said, a, a total sea change of, of kind of thought and approach how they need to tackle this situation. Um, I think it would be it would be understandable for Mark to to consider leaving if he saw that there was going to be no progress. Like you could argue that there's not really been any progress from last year to this year at Honda, um, and that's despite Mark going above and beyond last year, coming back from injury before he should have, um, given them many different rallying cries throughout the second half of last year to try and get them whipped up and enthusiastic, ready to change. And it just didn't really happen. Um, but there have been a few indications recently that 
there has been a sea change of thought at Honda. Um, I think it was um, a couple of senior figures that have been present at races recently. We had Ayama, I think the vice president of Honda Motor was present at Mugello and Mugello was obviously a disaster. So he was able to see firsthand where the situation is. Um, and I think since the summer break, uh, Hikaru Sukamoto, who's the head of Honda's two-wheel department, has been at a few races, just kind of overseeing how things have gone. And obviously things haven't been going well at all in the Honda stable. There's the a new project leader as well now that's yeah. just, just come in to, to play. So the fact that there are these uh, these major figures now taking an interest um, suggests that um, they're trying to think of, of rapid ways to, to get out of this. And um, a couple of reports, I think it was in uh, motorsport.com, um, Oriel Pujamont, uh, noting that um, Alberto Puj has now been given a bit of a, a carte blanche to go and hire people that are not... Japanese, not from a Honda background, from the paddock to come and work to try and get this project back on back on the rails, um, and that is that's exactly what it needs. They need people that have experience of recent winning MotoGP projects and machinery. Um, that's the kind of thing that's going to build this Honda this Honda team back up again. Yeah, if you go down to Stefan Bradl's garage, what you've seen is there's a lot of Japanese engineers in there, a lot of new faces, a lot of faces I haven't seen before, uh, so they are clearly busy. Mark has a contract, so there's not going to be any kind of announcement. This thing could just peter out. In fact, what you're likely to see first is an announcement from Grassini for their second rider, and that will pretty much close the door. Who 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 rides for Grassini if Mark Jake stays? Jake Dixon. Is there any other candidates? Yeah, possibly, but I don't think Juan Mir would go. I mean, Jake Dixon goes. Jake Dixon makes the most sense. Jake Dixon is going to do. He's going to be as good as Didier. Uh, might not be better than Didier, but it won't matter. TNT Sports, the uh, UK broadcaster, are going to be delighted because they really want a British rider because that that helps them sell their TV coverage. Uh, also, I think Jake is going to be quite good for TV as well. You know, he does. He has a. Uh, shall we say, a lively personality. He's a, he's, a, he's a loud person. He's going to make a bit of an impact. Um, well, uh, just to speculate, we know he signed a contract with um, the Gas Gas Aspar team for Moto2 next year, but we believe he has a clause in it where, whereby if he has a MotoGP opportunity, he can jump out. Any manager of any rider uh, who signs a contract in Moto2, which doesn't include a clause saying, uh, a clause saying if I get a MotoGP offer, I'm out, um, it shouldn't really be working. It's it, it's such a no-brainer. Um, if you get if you sign a Moto three contract, you have a you make sure that there's a clause saying that if you get a Moto two or Moto GP clause, you can you can get out of it. Same for Moto two, uh, you have to be able to accept a ride in Moto GP. Same on a satellite team, if you get offered a, a factory ride, you have to be able to take the factory ride. It it's these the sort of exceptions. Moto GP contracts are. Uh, carefully crafted to allow people to get out of them when they don't need to. Why do we think that Pramac didn't announce Frankie Morbidelli this weekend? Or maybe I'm, I'm shooting myself in the foot with the timing here because by the time <laughs> exactly. we publish probably, this thing, it could well, be announced. I haven't seen an email pop up, so who knows? <laughs> um, good question. Uh, it is a good question, yeah. I mean, it, it seems that for all intents and purposes, he's going to be at Pramac next year. Um, I think Ducati management have expressed on the record that they want Franco to be there, that he will be there. Um, but um, I'm not sure what the kind of wranglings are. I wonder if it's just to do with the fact that we had um, the uh, we had uh, Marco Bezzecchi announced in 
Barcelona. We had Luca Marini announced here. Um, you don't want sort of, you know, you, you don't, if, especially as Ducati, you don't want people stealing each other's PR thunder. I don't think we'd be see one, uh, would see an announcement in India because there's going to be so much PR in India. Um, if the deal is done, then it doesn't really matter when you announce it. You just want to announce it when it's when you're going to get sort of maximum publicity. I'm not sure whether that'll be Mategi. It might be uh, sort of Indonesia, that sort of time. Just to go back to, we were speaking about Mark. Um, we have to sort of mention his performance in yesterday's race because it was quite remarkable. Best, best weekend of the year. Yeah, definitely best weekend of the year. And from what I'm sort of inferring, it did seem there was a few weekends where Mark was just a bit listless. We were hearing from people at Honda that he was entirely sick of the whole thing. He was not angry, but yeah, he was, I guess, carrying a real air of frustration. He didn't want to do any sort of media interactions. Um, he was just with a, a bit of a cob on, as they say, back home. Um, whereas I feel this weekend, how he approached it, no crashes, um, carried out his strategy to perfection where little risk in practice, but when it matters for qualifying or trying to get into qualifying too, risk it all. And then... Soft rear tyre for the race. Soft rear tyre for the race. Yeah, everyone else is on the medium rear tyre. Um, he couldn't get the medium to work, ran the soft, and just rode like an absolute animal in the first half, first two-thirds of the race. Then was completely spent physically and with the rear tyre and was able to, to kind of defend resolutely. He was, what, 21 seconds ahead of the next best Honda. I just thought that that performance, it looked like a kind of different mark, a mark that was kind of buying back into the, yeah, the kind of the Honda way and yeah, thinking like, you know what, this is the situation we're in and I'm going to have to start doing this every week if we're going to try and pull this project up that, by the bootstraps. You know? it, it, like a man who was kind of settled in his mind about what he's going to do. I yep. mean, for four Grand Prix now or podcasts, we've been saying, yep, he's out, he's made his mind up. I mean, he has a level of dissatisfaction that, you know, just is not sustainable. But then, you know, the way things had turned around, maybe some of it was fortune. Maybe he was close to crashing. I mean, look at Paul Spargaro, five crashes this weekend. That, that was a, a stark contrast. It's, uh, I, I, I think for me, and also I think his playfulness with the media on Thursday about, you know, things going on. Um, actually had journalists asking him, are you kind of tired of people asking? And he sort of laughed that off and said, well, that's kind of your job. And, you know, I don't mind adding to it. So, yeah, yeah, it was you know, like you say, that playfulness is back. It was interesting that um, he basically sort of said, um, if I would have been younger, it might have been much more stressful. But, you know, like I've been here for 20 years. This is, I, I know this paddock. This is, uh, uh, I know what it's like. I'm I'm used to it. So 20 years? He, he, I think no, he, he said, said if you were a 20 year old, oh, then I you would have you, been. I beg your pardon. Yeah, well, right. He's 10 years. Yeah, he's exactly. 10 years in MotoGP now. Yeah, so. ex exactly. If he was a 20 year old, it would have been much more, uh, much more stressful. Uh, you know, he's not, he's, 30, he's been He's been around the block a fair few times. So, yeah, he, he knows what the score is. And and he gets so much media that he also understands, he understands it. Not as well as Valentino Rossi ever did, but Valentino Rossi, you had the same. He knew how much he controlled the media, and because he controlled the media, um, he knew that he could play with them. I mean, Valentino Rossi was brilliant at manipulating them. Uh, this was more, you know, just playing with them. He knew that that people would bite. Yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out that on Thursday there was a whole load of speculation. One or two publications were even saying that it looked as though he was going to be moving to Grassini. But that sort of went a bit quiet on Friday. And then the feeling yesterday, I think, certainly speaking to someone from Honda, was that 
if he was leaving, they would have kind of known by now. Whereas it seemed like a, a sort of relatively happy camp yesterday. So all indications are that he's sort of staying. Yeah, in Spanish as well, Mark let slip that HRC and Honda are not really a company you can bully into action. So mm. he's been quite subtle, I think, with his uh, his level of you know just general unhappiness with the, the state of play. Yeah, or not so subtle if you <laughs> consider giving this bike the finger. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, well, one thing about the the, the fact that he's being allowed to test the the new bike, um, it seems to me that. It, Honda know the, 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 the hole that they're in. It makes absolute sense to let him test it, whether he was staying or not, just because they really desperately need uh, the feedback. To me, it's a bit mysterious why they're not um, uh, letting Frank and Mo- why Yamaha are not letting Frank and Morbidelli test, because you know they've only got two bikes on the grid and you want as much feedback as you can get. On the subject of silly season, rider contract situations like that, we wanted to talk with uh, somebody who knows a lot more than us. So we found out Bob Moore, a former motocross world champion. We grabbed him in the Red Bull hospitality across the weekend and asked him some questions. So uh, here's our interview. Enjoy. Bob, first of all, cheers for talking to us. Um, tell us a little bit about your career and your role currently in MotoGP. Well, it, it kind of all stands back from when I was uh, racing. When I retired racing in 1997, I um, was fortunate enough to become the team manager of American Honda, uh, FMF Honda. So that kind of led me straight into like a manage, managing type of a position. Um, and then I was really keen on working really closely with the riders, not so much from the team standpoint, but more the riders. And it just kind of fell into place that I became a manager of riders. Um, maybe it's more so just because of what I did in the past and that they trusted me on a motorcycle um, and that I did my own contracts when I was racing for the good and bad, but I learned a lot. And so that goes back almost 23 years ago, 22 now. And I've been with the current company with which is Wasserman for over 20 years. And I'm the executive vice president of motorsports. So I oversee everything with with an engine, basically. That must mean quite a few series, as well as, you know, AMA, motocross, supercross, MXGP. Is there anything else you have to cover? Um, actually, that, that covers pretty much it. Obviously, our, our goal a few years ago was to get into Formula One. But more so, that was interviewing and, and uh, the agency side to try to acquire um, from Wasserman to grow into it that way um that hasn't haven't worked out just yet but um my main focus is MotoGP, and we've got a lot of talented other agents managers that that represent the talent in ama motocross and and even here in world 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 motocross so who are your clients currently in, in MotoGP this year MotoGP, i have three which is uh brad bender uh darren bender and uh aaron canet okay is it always um like very kind of temporal this this business that you're in i mean you can get clients i guess you can have a relationship for years but then you're trying to get new clients sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't um maybe for some someone else but i i I really look at this as um you know yes it's a business but at the end of the day i look at it from their perspective right i won't i won't take on a client if i don't think i can do a positive job for them Meaning, to go and and just have a rider stay in Moto Three or Moto Two, it, it's not my my goal, right? And, and I can't do a good job for them that way. I I try to look at focus on my athletes that that can grow, 
and I was blessed to have the opportunity to work with Brad Bender. This goes back nine years, right? I've been working with him. So that's kind of the stepping, you know, the, the path that we, we go on, right? We stayed maybe in Moto2 a little bit longer with Brad, but it's always um, was on the right trajectory. And now he's, he's doing a fantastic job. So, yes, certain riders have not worked out in the past, but we still have to look at it, give our 100%, right? And, and it really comes down to if I can really believe in that, that rider that has the talent to make it all the way in MotoGP, that's really when I, when I try to go after an, an individual rider. How does it work for you with Brad, Bob? Uh, I guess some people's perception of a sport agent is maybe from watching Jerry Maguire or something. I mean, yeah. is, there, is there a big pastoral side or is it more contractual, legal, formal? How, how does it work with you guys? It, it maybe so Wasserman is the number one agency in the world from an athlete representation standpoint. We have over 2,400 athletes. And that goes anywhere from football, soccer, golf. I mean, you name it. They have the sports on there. Now, we're just a real small piece in the motorsport side of things. Um, so I would say maybe I'm more in the, the traditional football, American football, baseball, basketball. They're looked at as just a clear agent or maybe even the soccer world, but not for me. I mean, I look at this as something that I immense myself in the whole every day-to-day aspect of that athlete whether it's their their personal life whether it's the family life whether it's you know issues back home or finding them insurance or whatever it's there's no job big or small that i don't try to help out at least give my advice in how do you find the the differences between motorsport i mean you have immense experience in that field and then seeing what your colleagues are dealing with in other sports because you know full well that in motocross and motorcycle racing, like the, the father and the family are, are very kind of influential people. I mean, there are still riders now in MotoGP who have their father as a, an agent or a manager. Yeah. So, you know, how, how do you see the differences? Is, is, is motorsport a little bit harder to crack because of that bond between the athlete and their family? It is a little bit. Again, when I, when I approach someone as, as a family, I can, I can understand in the first 30 seconds of a conversation whether they believe in me as an agent or a manager to represent their, their, their child to, to do what's better for them, or the father or the mother know more than I do, which is often the case. And so I, I, can, I can get a real good sense real early whether that's never going to happen or I have a chance, because I, I make it very clear in the beginning. I'm not, I'm not to replace a mother or father. I want to have that athlete son or daughter have that relationship with their parents forever and I just try to help alleviate some of that because when when the someone goes to a wrong team or there's issues with sponsors or whatever it, 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 it really it really hampers it puts a damp you know it's damaging to the to a, a family relationship and I, I I just look at it as a profession right I I know what I've been able to do, fortunately, for athletes. And it's like, would you rather have some guy that works at a gas station work on your motorcycle? Or would you want a professional mechanic? It's, it's, it's that clear, right? I mean, you can, you can have someone do your stuff over here, or you can have someone professional do it. Is there like a, a rhythm to your job? Because, you know, motorsport, again, fans of MotoGP will see a silly season period. You know, this kind of fervent 
hive of activity that happens for a period of weeks, it seems, when press releases come out. But I'm guessing that you're talking with people or teams or brands for months and months and months, and it's uh, there's a lot of work behind the scenes. Yeah, I guess one of the things that I've been blessed to be able to be a part of racing for so long, you get the you get to know the right people, right? And that is, there's two things. One, I can say, silly season really never hits my side because I I'm proactive. I'm someone that's when I sign somebody, I'm already looking at what the next three years is going to look like or five years. And that's really how I plan things. I try to go out and really position my riders and my, the way I work at things on, on just that. So when, I, when I'm doing a contract with a rider, it's done usually months and months before even it comes out in, 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 on paper. So I, from a silly season standpoint, it, fortunately, it doesn't really affect me because I'm kind of, I'm trying to be ahead of, ahead of the game. I mean, we're sitting here in the Red Bull hospitality and, you know, you've been, like you said, you've been working with Brad for a lot of years now. We're in Mizano. Um, it's pretty busy. But I just wondered how you, how it was dealing with maybe European brands to say to Japanese brands, but in my experience at least, Japanese brands have a much more, much more formality to their budgeting structure. You know, sometimes you cannot get answers until a certain period of the year. I mean, have you experienced that as well? Are things a little bit more organic maybe with the European? A, a little bit. Um, but again, it's every company is different and you have to have an understanding of who, you, who you're talking to how they've treated other people in the past. I mean, there's so many elements of, of this that, again, I just come down, it comes down to having the experience to be able to talk to the right people and getting in. Most of my job is done during the race weekends is getting information about what everybody else is doing. Because if I have information about what all, the other 21 MotoGP riders are doing, it just helps my guy. And that's yeah. rad. And that's, that's what I try to do is really just dissect and find out what everybody's doing, how much everyone's getting for helmets, how much people are getting for leathers, how much people are getting for energy. It just the list goes on and on. And then I, I can better position my rider in a certain team or place. It must be difficult to navigate the rumors then, or there must be a bit of not false talk, but some misleading info sometimes. Yes and no. Again, I go back to that. Again, being so blessed to be a part of this sport now for 17 years, MotoGP. Um, if you look at it, there's really about seven to ten people max. Now, I'm not talking about helmet companies or leather. I'm talking about teams and bikes and organization stuff. If you have a connection with those seven to ten people and you can communicate with them the rumors are the rumors right but you you actually then know what is reality have you had some interesting experiences sometimes when it comes to the negotiation phase i mean you must have some interesting characters that you have to talk to when it comes to you know putting the final details into a deal i mean i imagine it must be some you know eyeball to eyeball kind of uh, you know conversations going on sometimes <laughs> Yes, for sure. Uh, um, I have, again, the, the, the athletes that I do, the athletes that I, I manage are just awesome guys. And they allow me to do my job, meaning when I go into negotiation and I sit and I speak with a team, 
I get my points across. I'm not somebody that comes in and asks for thousands more just to come down on my price. I come down, I just basically say, here's my, here's the deal. This is what I want. And it's a yes or a no. It, it, I'm fine with no, but I, I'm not a guy that just goes in. But oftentimes it's important to have all that information from your athlete on what they want. You know, the extra things like extra hotels, rooms, or flights, or motorcycles, or, you know, whatever. It's important to have that prior to going and, and sitting down. Because when you have a deal and you go in and say, okay, well, this deal's done, and then to come back three days later to say, oh, you we know, want sorry, this and this we, and this. I, I need a little bit more. I need something else. That's the, that's the tough part, right? That's, that's the hard part. But... I, I would, I'd be lying if I said it doesn't happen because it has. I mean, Bob, you scaled the heights of your own sport. You won races, championships. Uh, can you, does that give you an extra degree of patience when it comes to dealing with these guys? Because I'm sure there's you know, a, a definition of an elite athlete is someone who's always looking to be better and maybe there's a, a short fuse or a lack of patience there. I mean, does, that, does your experience help you in that, that aspect? Absolutely. And I go back to just being in a position I'm blessed to be able to work with the athletes that I've had. I mean, I've, I've had some amazing guys, whether it's Chad Reed to... John Hopkins in MotoGP was my first MotoGP rider to, you know, Cal Crutchlow to, I mean, a lot of guys, just those three riders. That's quite a handful. That's, <laughs> if you know their personalities, I can tell you that was challenging. So yes, hundred percent. That's, that's, that's been able, that, that has helped me have even more patience and understanding in certain situations. I, I can honestly t- sit here and tell you, I don't know what I've done to, ha- to, 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 to be able to have this gift in my life, but this rider, Brad and Darren Bender, is there are the nicest people and well-respected people in the paddock, and they're just a pleasure to work with. I, I tell this to the parents all the time. I'm like, I, you've done a really good job of raising your boys. Anytime I give them advice or when I ask them questions, it's, it's, it's really clear. It's just it's straight. It's to the point, and it's exactly the way anyone would, would, would love to have. Maybe it's a tough question, but how do you find being able to market, you know, like the Binders or any other the clients you've had? Is it quite tough to sell the MotoGP races at, at the moment or in the past? Well, it depends on, from, from my perspective, I have to just look at where their, where their market is, right? And, and um, right now, it's, it's very easy to look at Brad and Darren Bender and sell of them in, in South Africa because right now they're superstars over there. So uh, every rider is different. Aaron Kinnett, I've just signed with Aaron and, um, and my colleague Jeremy uh, DeBreeze is going to be helping me with him grow, this, grow our sport on this side. But Aaron will be completely different, right? We need to focus. What I want to do with, with Aaron is more focus him on outside of Spain. Because Spain is, yes, he's pretty popular in Spain, but... It's saturated. It's just, yeah, it's so diluted there, too. I want to bring out him and more of the Asian markets and the American market and things that we can hopefully do in the future with him will be different. How do you find the whole situation for the United States in, in MotoGP? I mean, when it comes to riders, the perception of it, stuff when you see when you're back home and conversations you're having... I know, I know it's a very wide-ranging question again, Bob, but um, do you have an opinion on what could be done? Or I mean, what, what Dorna has done in the last 25, 30 years has a, 
been a fantastic for their home country, right, for Spain. They've invested millions and millions and millions of dollars into taking and, and gr growing the next generation, which is now three generations or at least two, right, of champions going through. Um, now you look at MotoGP or Moto2, I mean, it's, it's, it's full of, of Spanish riders. So I, I have to trust that the formula that they used can work anywhere. I know they're investing, Dorna's investing a lot of money in, in Asia markets, and, and we're going to probably see that coming up even more and more. America is a, 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 a special place as well. I know a lot of the manufacturers would love to target. We just unfortunately don't have that background. Like, you know, even the, the Red Bull Rookie Cup that was over there years ago is no longer there. So when you, when you see riders nowadays, it's tough because there's no... There's no back, you know, there's no base for them to start. They just instantly get thrown into the wolves, and then they're riding out there with really older, talented riders. But for them to succeed, it's really, really hard. I and mean, there's, there's no place for them to just, you know, grow up, win a championship, and then instantly come over here and, and ride the Junior Cups or the, you know, the Spanish Championships or whatever to, to get themselves noticed to go into Moto3 or Moto2. I mean, if Pedro Acosta was American, would that be something you could really work with? Oh. Or do you, do you still think there would be a... It would be a dream come true. Because, again, I, you know, we, we, we are fortunate enough to work with the new icons of the sport, which is Jet and Hunter Lawrence. Um, I don't personally work with them, but we, Wasserman represents him, and we, he has a great, great manager that's building him up. Lucas. That's a guy yeah. that will literally probably take... Carmichael, Stewart, and McGrath and put them all together and I believe that's where that's where Jet and Hunter Lawrence are going to be in the coming years just because of so to answer your question absolutely um, we have a very 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 good uh, agency within Wasserman I believe it's the best I've been there for 20 years I've seen what other places do um, and if you have the top riders you know we can really maximize that and not so much from inside this board it's more telling the story and, and growing from the outside you mentioned part of your job is information gathering but is a frustration part also trying to predict what's going to happen i mean if you look at say mark marcus's situation where he signs a four-year deal of hrc and theoretically is in a position where he wants to get out of it early because of the competitiveness of the bikes can it sometimes be hard to advise a client and say listen we'll sign this long-term deal or we'll move here when you know things can change so fast Yes, I, I think that Mark is in a very delicate situation right now. Of course, he's he's one of the most talented riders that MotoGP has seen. I know he's frustrated for sure. Um, and that's, you know, what what my advice would be would 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 most likely be different than what he's probably currently getting. But again, that's that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, Mark chose to to change management last year after having a long, long career with, with his current manager. Um, and everyone athlete needs to have that decision, right? They, they need to, they, they need to, to feel comfortable with this because what we do is not rock rocket science, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the number one most important thing is that the rider trusts you and to trust you with, with everything. And, if there's that, if that trust kind of fades away or goes somewhere else, then you're you're not you know you're not doing your job. I, you're just you haven't you've outlived that. I think I don't want to say anything bad about what you know 
Mark's current or last manager was because I think he did a fantastic job. Maybe it was, maybe it's just the time. You know, maybe it was after so many years of just doing the same thing. Maybe he just wanted to change. I don't know, but it does seem now Mark has really changed a lot of the way that he's 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 doing things now. Can the whims or the demands of a client also be difficult to juggle because? You know, if somebody really wants to change and you could see that they will be better off, you know, maintaining a consistency or continuity with their contract. Like, look at Brad, for example. How many years inside KTM since 2015? And, you know, he's built up such a great crew of people around him. I mean, if I draw a parallel, it would be like to Mark with Repsol Honda or say like Tony Cairoli with Claudio De Carli and that relationship that brought so many championships. So can it sometimes be hard to make a client see that you know, a sudden impulse is not perhaps not the best direction. That, that's that just comes down to whether you really have the belief in, or whether the athlete has a belief in your your thoughts and process or not. Um, I can give you an example of of one of my riders in the past, Cal Crutchlow. I was managing him. I finally got him to Ducati. I said, "Look, it's going to be probably a couple of years of pretty hard work, but stick with it." make you know he's was making great money i said let's let's go about it and and um and continue that road after six eight months on the bike he was really upset and just said bob you got to get me out of this thing i'm like are you kidding me i mean we had a two-year contract and it was just it was uh, i mean i was just beside myself because i'm like this is this is where i saw cal finishing his career as the test rider and being you know, just kind of a, a Ducati icon, you know, kind of like the Fogarty type scenario. I just, I visioned that for him. Cal had a different uh, idea. Uh, he's very strong-minded and strong-willed, and he said, no, I'm out. I want to do something else. Now, fortunate enough, we got him on a good program. I, I took him to, a, I think, one of the best gentlemen in, the, in this paddock in MotoGP, which was uh, Lucio Chocanello because he's dealt with some, you know, wild riders in the past and, and he, he was able to accept it and, and do everything. So, yeah, I guess, yes, it's frustrating at times, but, you know, I only manage three riders, right? I don't, I don't, I, I can't go over to their other managers or I don't ever approach another a- athlete and say, hey, you should try to do this or don't, don't do that, you know, because that's, that's not my job. I mean, there are only just over 20 riders on the MotoGP grid. Is there a position where you think, of course, you'd li- as a business, you'd like to have more clients, but then do you enjoy being able to focus on just a couple of guys and, and you know, yeah. try and boost their particular projects? Absolutely. And, and I look at it as when I started with this company with Wasserman, I was with another agency at the time, and I managed 14 Supercross and Motocross riders at that time talk about stress i mean that was absolutely insane and it was just too much so when i came to the company i said i only want one thing i want to pick and choose who i manage and i want my own department i can do whatever what basically whatever i want but i'm not going to have a whole bunch of riders um i believe that if you have the the right rider the revenue is going to come in but if you just you know get a whole bunch of you know 15 or 10 riders and and just a, it's kind of like a lottery lottery machine it's you don't have the same feeling at least for me i i like that individual i like to have a relationships with my guys and understand the good and the bad you know so i can try to help them as we're here talking i have to ask 
how was it dealing with the two brothers, two different kind of personalities in a way between Darren and Brad? Is it, it quite? Does it get interesting sometimes? It is absolutely a blast because they are completely different characters. I mean, there's one's white and one's black. I mean, it's <laughs> like you don't. There's yes, they share the same last name, but they're awesome. I mean, I, I love them both, and you know this the same way as I would have my own kids right i mean they're they're just they're really really good kids they one the way one character is completely opposite the other but um they both have very very great talent to ride a motorcycle again i go back to their their parents raising them really well and 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 they're a pleasure to work with for sure but it's completely different right you know what i when i bring a sponsor to brad or when i talk to him about one thing I couldn't probably do the same with, with, with Darren, you know, because it wouldn't work, right? Some, some, some sponsors with Darren wouldn't work with, with Brad. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a funny, funny mix. Lastly, Bob, um, when it comes to the professional and the emotional side, I mean, for, say, for example, you sign Fabio Quattararo tomorrow and he won. Would it somehow feel, would it resonate more that, you know, when Brad wins because you've, you've been there that long and the project has built all the way up from Moto2 and it's been something that, you know, the KTM obviously were not so established here. Does that kind of progression of, you know, explosion of the whole thing, the whole program, does that kind of make it much more intense and much more enjoyable for you? Absolutely. I mean, when you invest that much, that much time in an individual rider and grow together, and take decisions together um, to whether we stay in Moto2 or we go to MotoGP or whether we stay with this team or go to another team. Those are all, yeah, it's amazing. So, I mean, our decision just with Brad recently to renew this contract was simply due to the fact that I finally, not finally, I would say that we believed in this project a long time, but Brad was in a different position three, four years ago. Now, every single manufacturer wants Brad Bender because they know what he's capable of doing. I put a lot of thought into this project, and I looked at it as simply, we believe that this will be the best team in the future. And that's why we made the commitment to to continue on. And hopefully we can can go all the way to the top. Bob, thanks ever so much for your time. It's great to talk to you. No, No problem. Thank you. Just coming back to the second phase of the show, before we move on, Dave, uh, we had the sad news, of course, that, um, you know, Mike Trimby passed away. I mean, you gave a very eloquent and detailed description of his impact in MotoGP. I just wondered if you could, you know, that was in our Paddock Note show. So people want to go and listen to it, then please do. It's on, on Patreon. Join us, in fact, for extra content throughout Grand Prix weekends. But just to try and summarize again, Mike's, um, you know, presence in this paddock and has really helped shape the sport over the last few decades. Yeah, it? I mean, he was the driving force behind Erta setting up, and I think, in 86. Before that, he was the uh, uh, elected the rider safety representative by the 500 riders. Um, uh, there on uh, Matt Oxley's Twitter account, he posted a uh, one of the founding documents, you know, the reasons for joining Erta, and it was basically like, if we join together, we can improve the safety. Um, if we join together, we can improve the financial conditions of the uh, of the team, uh, of uh, of the teams. Um, uh, uh, sort of right from the start, he made huge contributions to safety. Um, uh, and 
built a team around him who worked on uh, who helped improve safety um when Dorna bought MotoGP in, or well, yeah, Grand Prix racing as it was then uh, in '92, uh, I think Carmelo Espelito in a special press conference said that him and Mike Trimby sort of banged heads of, uh, for the first couple of years until they realised they both had, you know, the the, the same interests, um, and you know, worked forward to get MotoGP to where it is. Trimby always made sure that tracks were safe. He worked a lot on safety. He was involved a lot in safety. He was also involved uh, especially in making sure that the teams had money. Um, the, prior to the formation of Erta, uh, at the end of it, each race was organized individually. And at the end of the race, the riders had to basically go to the promoter to get their start money. And sometimes they arrived at a locked door to find that the promoter had absconded with their uh, with their <laughs> funds, which was not uh, fun. So yeah, the, 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 now if you look at the, the, the team's trims are an incredibly stable financial situation. They're not wealthy, they're not rich, and they still have to scratch around for money. Um, but you know, there is a there's a there's a stable financial uh, basis. I think the greatest tribute to Mike Trimbia that we saw is that yesterday we had a fantastic event perfectly run and it happened thanks to Erta who lost their figurehead on Friday night in the middle of an event and yet the event still ran perfectly smoothly so it was that to me was just a, a fantastic sign of his legacy the fact that he built a team capable of doing that yeah, that was the minute silence to where the, practically the whole paddock came out onto the start straight. I've yet to see a photo, but I'm sure it's it's quite powerful. And also, I recommend um, anybody just to go onto MotoGP.com. There's a 12-minute video of a press conference that was uh, held really in sort of commemoration of Mike, you know, with um, Carmelo Espeleta, um, Jorge Villegas, the FIM president, as well as Hervé Poncharal, you know, the ERTA president, where they talked about Mike. And, you know, if you're kind of thinking, well, I've heard that name, um, you know, what did he do? Then I urge you to go and watch the video because it's brilliant and explains a bit more. Yeah, um, and he was a he was a pretty uh, pretty decent mechanic, pretty decent rider by all accounts. I think he rode the TT quite a few times, uh, was a rider in the Grand Prix paddock as well. Um was obviously a pretty fearsome character because he was the guy that people like Kenny Roberts decided to elect to represent them when they were when he, they wanted basically like better conditions for working. Um, you know, Dave mentioned about the safety. I think he also made the paddock a much better living place to be for riders during the eighties. They would turn up, and I think um, there was a good interview that Matt Oxley did with uh, Matt Oxley again um, with Mike. Um, I think earlier this year. Um, which he's talked about coming to a, a racetrack in France one time, Nagaro, I think it was, in the early 80s. And he said basically the toilets were like so wretched and horrible in the paddock that everyone had to drive into town to buy a coffee to use the restroom in like the, the, the nearest <laughs> cafe. So it wasn't, it was also about making race circuits livable and um, amenable for the people visiting them. Um, he also had um, clearly like a very handy business acumen as well because it was him that sort of understood the need to centralize the kind of the TV rights, which he managed to do, I think, in the late 80s. Dave was sort of telling me that prior to that, um, each individual Grand Prix would sort of be, um, they would have the rights for the television for that particular weekend. And Mike realized that that wasn't really a, a sort of savvy way to go forward that sort of needed to be centralized underneath one championship so the championship could sell the package rather than the individual events and one of the things that we talk about with MotoGP this uh, you know in the last 
couple of decades is just how great the TV package is in terms of like the cameras and the the sort of wall to wall coverage. Um, and I'm not saying that because uh, I'm in a minor. Oh, we minor just turned the audio uh, off. Yeah. Yeah. The audio is the worst. A minor way involved in that, but um, but you know, Mike was basically the the guy that sort of was behind that in the late '80s. So you have to say, um, just chapeau and fair play and it was a, an indicator of the the kind of man that he was just that there were thousands of people lining up on the uh, the start finish straight on saturday for that minute silence and it was people that would have known mike from way back when in the 70s and 80s to guys that are riding in model three nowadays so um you know that sort of influence and um yeah that presence just extended over several generations yeah, I'm um, uh, also uh, Keith Ewan, who was friends with uh, Mike Trimby. Um, Keith Ewan did a series of podcasts for BBC, BBC Bikes. If you search for BBC Bikes, uh, Mike Trimby, then it should throw out the podcast. I think it's like about a half an hour interview that Keith did with uh, Mike Trimby. And that was, that's really good. It's really worth listening for to understand the history of motor, uh, the, the history of motorcycle racing and where we and how we got where we are today. Yeah, hopefully Erta can carry on, uh, honour his legacy with the excellent work that he did. And, you know, the way he dedicated his life to this paddock so uh, r.i.p uh, mike trimby guys we like to have questions from you uh, whether it's through twitter or through patreon uh, we had one uh, this week neil from jonathan P- uh, ferguson who asked uh, about hosting duties for moto e and how that is for you considering the championships just finished so um how would you like to answer that what does it involve yeah i mean it involves some commentating on on the qualifying and the two races but what about uh that's a that's a very kind of Marco Bezzecchi answer that is. You know? <laughs> I mean, surely, what about research and investigating Moto E, especially yeah, with a brand new? Well, yeah, preparation, obviously. Yeah, it involves that too. Um, yeah, and I think Jonathan's question was, why was I so delighted on Saturday night that Moto E was over for the year? Um, it was more just because uh, Saturdays are ludicrously busy, or have been since Le Mans when we've had when Moto E started up, and basically has been every European race since then. Um, yeah, Saturdays have just been mental and um, it's already busy enough trying to keep on top of Model GP, Model 2, Model 3, throw in Model 2, Model E races on a Saturday and I was coming to Saturday evenings when we record these Paddock Note shows without sometimes even hearing one Model GP rider speak so um, it was uh, it was just difficult to keep on top of it all and Saturday is going to be a, just a great deal more relaxed now. Well, in that case, you're certainly a winner, but keep talking and tell us who was your elected winner from this Grand Prix. Uh, my elected winner was Pekka Banyaya because he finished third twice at his home race, uh, seven days and six days after he was run over by Brad Binder's bike before he was flung from uh, his own machine at uh, kind of terrifying uh, velocity. Um, and, you know, it was clear that physically he was not anywhere near 100%, um, yet he comes away from this race weekend losing only just 14 points uh, to Jorge Martin. And yes, his championship lead is, has been reduced, but by the same token, I think it's uh, it's probably the perfect damage limitation job that he could have done. And he was just, you know, it was really, it was a really gritty performance. I don't think we've seen that kind of grit from Peko uh, maybe in years gone by riding with like a, a clear injury. Um, he showed that he's not going to relinquish this crime without a real stubborn, serious fight. Did, how, did you like the yellow livery? Yeah, it was all right. And what did you think of the the helmet job? The the you know the custom lid. It was somewhat less controversial than his previous selection here at Mazzano. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I didn't actually 
that that's something that just completely passed me by. I, I was aware that Marco Bezzecchi had a music-inspired uh, Simply helmet. the Bears. Simply the Bears, yeah, with a Spotify playlist. But what was Peckham's? It was like an angry teddy or something. Like an, yeah, there? it was like an angry teddy. I mean, it was just sort of, you know, completely random. I'm sure it had some significance, but... Um, it didn't uh, explain really what it no, was. No, exactly. No, no. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm nearly 60. <laughs> the angry teddy didn't uh, yeah, no, hang out no, with the, uh, North. the whole custom helmet thing is really uh, is really above my I don't think I'm the target market are we sure that the angry teddy didn't uh, you know hang out with um, a North Korean dictator at some point <laughs> in his life or uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh, so yeah Paco Bagnai interview on the podcast just lost that one um Dave, for you, who was your fellow tiramisu lover from uh, the Grand Prix? <laughs> My uh, big winner is uh, Mark Marquez for all of the reasons that Neil summed up earlier. Uh, the fact that he finished 21 seconds ahead of uh, the, the next Honda. I think he was faster this year than uh, the best Honda last year. Um, he finished seventh, which he had absolutely no business doing. Uh, he, he proved that it really is the bike and not him. Uh, he showed he really I mean it was it was a really strong weekend apart from the fact that you know he's seventh um, he showed that he's still got it uh, and that if Honda can step up he can uh, he can still win championship yes another race finish on a Sunday calm down Mark you know you only allowed a couple a year but uh, yeah good point so my winner was uh, I think KTM slash Danny Pedrosa uh, I mentioned on the note shows that Pedrosa's tested here, extremely familiar with that motorcycle, though apparently he's only tested the new carbon chassis twice before he came here. Uh, has six previous podiums at Misano, so it's a track that he likes. The conditions were favorable for him, but it was still an incredible level of performance. He finished seventh and sixth in the sprint and the race in Jerez and elevated that to two fourth positions here. I think... You know, that's, uh, I mean, I asked him in his debrief, you know, how can you explain how you're consistently at this level to be able to perform? And he kind of just sort of smiled and looked for an answer, shrugged his shoulders and gave up. So, you know, I think even he struggles to really understand why he is so good he's so good because he was always so good you know he was fast he still is fast you don't lose sort of speed what you lose is the consistency over a, uh, uh, over the season I wasn't as debrief but I read the transcript when he was asked you know so do you want to come back and he's like no <laughs> <laughs> like, but the old problems were there Dave it took him a couple yeah. of laps to heat the rear tyre imagine if he's racing every if he's doing yeah. 21 Grand Prix next year if he came back then yeah and he's not going to have an extra week of te- you know an extra couple of days of testing at each track ahead of time to to set the bike up yeah and it was notoriously cold yesterday during the MotoGP race you know (laughs) so really not ideal conditions to heat up a rear tyre yeah so there we go and also a quick nod towards KTM because they also like HRC have extra technicians downstairs for this test Jack Miller, goodness, what a weekend. Um, he really needs extra time on the motorcycle to rediscover that base setting. And there's some clever people down there in the pit box. But heading onto that subject, Neil, you're a loser from the weekend. Wow. It's the man you just mentioned, Jack Miller. Um, pretty bad weekend, you'd have to say. Another one. Um, it's not really been going to plan for Jack of late. Um, I think he scored just 25 points from the last five race weekends. Um, and I think in some ways he's maybe a victim of his own early success with the KTM. The fact that he was so strong and surprised us all to quite a considerable extent in the opening six, five, six race weekends. Um, you know, he had a really strong start to the year. Was so, so impressed with how he was adapting to the, the new environment and the new bike. Um, and, you know, at Hareth, we were kind of saying things like this bike suits Jack more than Chicati, which I don't think anyone was really thinking. Um However, it's been a, a bit of a, a rut 
that he finds himself in. Um, it seems like he got lost with some setting changes that he made at um, at Assen, and he's just not quite been able to get those back. And um, yeah, no point this weekend did you really see him anywhere up towards the the kind of the top ten. He was fifteenth in the sprint. He was taken out by Piro in uh, Sunday's race, but it was a uh, another drag. And um, you know, when you had Danny Pedrosa fourth, Brad Binder would have been fighting, I think, for the podium had he not crashed early on. You know, it's it's quite a considerable step down for Miller then. Um, so yeah, it's it's a tough time. The only consolation is that he has a, an appointment next week with his wife Ruby to have a cesarean. He's welcomed his first child. How much that comes into it, you you can never really say. Maybe Jack can't even say himself. But you know, I mean, you'd assume at the age he has and the experience he has, he's a full professional, and just hope everything goes well for those guys um, next week in Australia, and he'll be back on the pipe soon. Uh, my loser, just before we come to you, Dave, um, I think I'm going to say the Gas Gas team. Sympathy for Augusto Fernandez because he had been picking up points in every single Grand Prix this year. Now, yesterday, finishes 16th, just misses out to Franco Morbidelli for the last one. And Paulo Spargaro, as we mentioned, numerous crashes. Uh, a very fast one as well, I think, on Friday. I want to say, or maybe actually heading into qualification on Saturday morning. I can't even remember which one it was now. But uh, yeah, Paul is, uh, as he admitted in his debrief, just looking for, for confidence. And, um, you know, with this whole Pedro Acosta thing rumbling on in the background and, you know, all of us are talking to people in the paddock and honestly have no indication of which way this is really going to swing yet. You would have to look at the situation with maybe Paul and think it's not going favorably. Yeah, I mean, Paul is really doing his best to make sure that it uh, uh, that uh, Pedro that it's his seats that Pedro Acosta gets. You know, you can't keep on making uh, these mistakes. I also do wonder still because he still has some issues with his shoulder, um, uh, not having the nerves there, not having the strength, not having uh, the ability to control the bike. So you sort of like think there are certain situations where the bike just gets away from him. Um, so, yeah, just just a miserable weekend for him. Uh, who else had a miserable weekend, Dave? Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what, my loser is not someone who had a miserable weekend. It's actually someone who had really quite a good weekend, but unfortunately he crashed in the main race um, and lost a lot of points. Brad Binder finished fifth in the sprint race, rode a fantastic race, was really great to look, uh, to, to watch, rode um, uh, really well for the first sort of like five, six, seven laps of the uh, Grand Prix and was looking very strong and then uh, just lost the front, just, you know, asked too much of the, the, of the front. He said, yeah, I was... The front was giving me warnings. I wasn't listening, and so I learned the hard way. Another turn fourteen victim. Yeah, ex- ex- yes, exactly. And um, he lost a lot of points. He takes him. I think he really took himself out of the the, the championship here. He's given himself an awful lot of work. All credit to him. He got back on the bike, rode round to fourteenth, and he was still pretty uh, pretty quick. But those are the sort of mistakes that you can't make if you have championship ambitions. Next week, we're going to attempt to preview the Grand Prix of India, MotoGP's first ever trip, uh, you know, reawakening the Bud International Circuit. I think they hosted Formula One for three years in a row. Since then, it's been somewhat decrepit, perhaps, maybe national events, but certainly nothing of the profile of a world championship. So uh, we'll be back next week to try and um, delve into that one a little bit. Like I said earlier, if you've got any questions or queries, then send us a message on Paddock Pass Pod on X or Twitter. 
and uh, also Patreon as well. We've got some extra stuff there if you want to hear the latest news and views every day from the Grand Prix. Uh, Dave, perhaps we can try and do a quick show in the next couple of days just to sum up the test. Um, otherwise, I recommend everybody just go and check out motomatters.com because you're going to have a fantastic evaluation of what was seen from the rest of the day here in Misano. Other than that, guys, safe trip home. I'll speak to you soon. Okay, guys, I'm going to try it. Ready? The Grand Premio Red Bull, the San Marino Idella River. So close. So, so close. close. One more go. Ready? Grand Premio Red Bull, the San Marino Idella Riviera de Rimini. Yay! He shoots yes. and he scores. I got it. Back of the net.